Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today we're going to discuss something that we hope will be useful for many of us. How ACT and a sister therapy called CRAFT can help those family members who have someone close with an addiction. I know from personal experience the frustration and feelings of hopelessness you can feel around having a loved one prioritize alcohol over her family or over even life and continue to make this choice even to the point of death. I know how I reacted as a child trying desperately to empty out bottles every day to no use. Not only did I feel helpless and also abandoned, but also ashamed. This experience for me has certainly made some serious imprints. And it's estimated about 3 out of 10 adults report that alcohol has been a problem for their family. Well, 20% of adults also say that drug use is a problem for their family. So today we're going to talk about what kind of help is available, and you're going to get a chance to talk to an expert, Dr. Christine Terry. Christine is a clinical psychologist who has experience and training in ACT and other evidence-based therapies for addiction and co-occurring disorders. She's also studied stigma related to substance use and mental health. She has been very interested in in interventions for family members who have loved ones with addictions, which is what we're going to talk about today. And she has been working with a sister therapy, which I mentioned, CRAFT, which is Community Reinforcement and Family Training, which is a treatment for families who have loved ones with addiction. You can read more about uh, Christine and Kraft on a website called the Sober Families website, which you can get to by clicking on Christine's name on this week's ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Remember that ACT has three parts. Opening up, which in this case might be opening up to the roller coaster emotions of love, hate, disgust, compassion, and shame. Thoughts trying to make sense of, of why this family member is acting as she is. And the physical sensations which in these painful moments um, are difficult and becoming aware which in this case could be understanding that the reality of this moment and what your thoughts are saying about it are two very different things. Understanding that no matter how difficult a feeling or thought or sensation is, it will pass and new moments will carry new possibilities. And the third is engaging in actions that you care about. In this case, it could be important to remember that engaging in action that actually 
what you could actually influence rather than what you cannot influence will save you time and energy. Most ways we try to influence those around us backfire on us. And today you're going to hear about some better ways you might influence uh, the family member with an addiction problem and be consistent with the person you want to be. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much, Joanne, for having me on your show today. Christine, I often start off this show by asking my guests about how they got interested, and I I know that this is um, a very difficult, difficult situation and difficult patients and a lot of hurt and suffering. So what got you interested in such a difficult area? Well, I definitely have a personal interest um, in terms of personal life experiences. Um, as a as a young adult, I had multiple friends who struggled with alcohol and and drug use, and I have some who, uh, to this day, I don't know if they're still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and like you, Joanne, I also have family members who have struggled with alcohol use and um, have really felt the helplessness and the anger and and just despair that comes from loving someone who won't stop using. Mm. And in graduate school, I I actually wanted to study depression and anxiety. And uh, kind of just by chance, um, I found out about this opportunity to work in an addictions treatment clinic at the Veterans Hospital. And just something in me just told me to do it, and so I did it. And mm-hmm. this and this year-long experience was actually really transformative for me. Uh, it just really guided me to really dedicate my time and, and my interest into working with people who have addiction. And um, they are just some really amazing people. I mean, there's just so much struggle, but so much resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say that during this experience, I also encountered just, there's so much stigma around addiction. Like people are called addicts or junkies. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just really painful for, for folks to, to, kind of go with those labels and to be with them and it can sometimes make it harder yeah, for them. It, it seems like it seems like there is in both the healthcare system and even among the police if if people are addicts um, they seem to be um, what is what is it about that stigma is it a feeling that there it's I I I think I I would say that I mean, you know, I can definitely speak speak from a research perspective, and there's been some research on this. And what it seems like what's happening with addiction is that there's a strong kind of component of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like at some point, the person made the choice to use, mm-hmm. and for some reason, we kind of continue to blame them for that original choice. Mm-hmm. I think we kind of see it as like they could just stop if they really wanted mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And it's that personal responsibility and kind of kind of also a bit of kind of that moral mm-hmm. sense of like you're a good person if you do these things and a bad person does yeah. these things. And I think that gets kind of all mixed in there and just results in a lot of prejudice and 
and, and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds similar. We had a program on obesity, uh, um, and uh, it seems something similar there. That there's a lot of stigma also around that you can make fun of people who are who are overweight. It seems that's okay. That it's also something similar. Yeah, I think so. I think that you know we you know we blame people for their choices i think particularly in in certain cultures such as uh, such as american culture which has this really strong idea of like i am responsible for what i do mm-hmm. and i think we struggle with people who become addicted because at some point that choice in in some ways gets taken away from them but we still kind of hold them up to this idea like you should just really just stop if you were really a strong enough person if you had enough free will or whatever mm-hmm. it is you could just stop mm-hmm. so christine how how common is uh this problem of i'm thinking um uh, yeah both for addiction and also for the family members yeah i would say maybe research kind of these big national studies that are done um, that ask about mental health concerns or substance use that we would consider problematic, which we often call addiction, mm-hmm. although addiction isn't a term that's not a technical term, but it's one that we use a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those national studies, we found that in just one year, out of any year, we see about 22.1 million people or 8% mm-hmm. of the U.S. population had problematic substance use. Mm-hmm. So substance use that resulted in them getting into trouble with the law, not going to work, or maybe they're using a lot and have become physically dependent upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just in one one year that many mm-hmm. people are suffering from that and in for families when they've done studies it's three out of every 10 adults say that alcohol use has been a problem in their family mm-hmm. and about 20 percent say that drug use has been a problem in their family and these numbers are actually thought to be underestimating well wow, three, three it is. yeah three out of ten if that's underestimated that would be like almost 50 percent yeah and, are- and they're that are influenced in some way. Yeah, and that's and that I have read some some studies and commentary that have suggested that it might be closer to that. Wow. Wow. So, Christine, you have met many family members. What 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 is it that the family members come for help? What do they seek help for? More often than not, whenever I get a call from a family member, they're calling me because they want me to get their loved one to stop using. Mm -hmm. And so initially, it is really focused on just make them stop, Mm -hmm. whatever you can do. Um, And by the time um, many people have made the call, they have tried so many different things like they've done the Johnson intervention which is the one that is on uh, an American television show called Intervention Mm -hmm. and this is 
you know, it's kind of like a surprise party where the family <laughs> gets together and, and then they have their loved one with the addiction show up and oh, wow. they, they attempt to get them to, to go into treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's like a big meeting where they kind of, everybody shows up and, and says like, this is how your use has impacted me. And this is, I really want you to get treatment. And if you don't, then I'm going to do these things. Wow. Is this actually a live program with real people? It is. It oh. is a live program. Yes, it's it's very intense to watch. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, usually family members have tried, like, pleading or threatening or bargaining with their loved ones to get them to use um, or to stop using. And by the time I talk with them, many of them are feel pretty depressed. I bet. Um, yeah, they're really anxious. The, there's a lot of anger mm. and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And for parents, it's really common that I hear a lot about guilt. If only they hadn't done this. Mm. If only they could have, you know, done you know, had taken them here instead of there or hadn't moved when they were so young or had paid more attention to them when they were a teenager, then maybe they wouldn't use. I think so. that's probably true for children of alcoholics as well. That that I know myself, that that's often a thought of if I had if I had been a better daughter, if I had done that, maybe maybe she would have chosen a different way. Right. Yeah, if only... I could have been, you know, you know, more uh, an easier child or, mm. you know, if I had only done this instead of this. And, and so there is there is a lot of that. You're right. Yeah. With with um, people who've grown up in families where addiction has been been present. And I'll say that a lot of the people I work with, too, there's just a lot of fear. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really reasonable because addiction can lead to death and to violence and, and to mm. incarceration. So, um, but I will say that uh, the people that I work with, they're some of the most loving and dedicated people mm. I have ever met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be a special type of frustration, this particular. I think it is. It's like you, we love people so much and we don't want to see them hurt and it's really hard to watch someone that you love hurt in, in this particular way. It's it's like a self-destruction. You're, you're like watching a train on the way to a train wreck, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, that's a really great uh, visual kind of image of that. And, and I've had families talk about that they feel like their lives are like that, like a train wreck or their, their child's life or their husband's life or their partner's life is just a train wreck that they're kind of witnessing mm. and they don't know what to do mm. to stop it. So important. So tell us, so tell us what about craft, how, how, um, what is, what is craft? Well, craft like many therapies out there, actually has, you know, stands for something. Um, and in this case, it has a very technical name. Um, it's not a very appealing name, I have to say. And CRAFT actually stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training, mm-hmm. 
which is, uh, like I said, not the, you know, not the most exciting name out there. And CRAFT is a therapy that's done one-on-one. So you can meet one-on-one with with a therapist or in groups with other family members. Mm -hmm. And CRAFT is all about teaching family members skills on how to non-confrontationally change their loved one's substance use Mm -hmm. and to empower themselves to lead lives that are not completely about their loved one's addiction. Mm -hmm. And it was developed by these clinical psychologists and and researchers who are really well regarded, you know, Robert Myers and, and Bill and William Miller and, um, they helped develop this approach from another approach, actually, that they had been interested in that worked directly with people with addictions. Mm-hmm. And and that approach was called CRA, which is Community Reinforcement Approach. Again, not the best names. Um, they're, they're very technical-sounding names. But the idea behind that approach was how can we make – other things in a person's life more rewarding than substance use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge challenge to do that. Mm-hmm. But it works. And So that would be very different than the Johnson of uh, trying to confront and surprise people. This would be more trying to work with when they are being catching them being good, <laughs> catching them not being sober. It, it is. It is very much like that, which, um, you know, in craft, what we really talk about is, you know, you know so much about what leads to your loved one to use. And we could use that information to help support sobriety mm-hmm. and to help you stop yourself from unintentionally um engaging in things that allows the substance use to continue. And by this, I mean, sometimes we do things that make it a little easier for a person to use. And so a real example of that is, you know, someone like your husband calls you at night and he's been out drinking and he wants you to come pick him up from the bar. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you like go and you do that. Because you don't want your loved one, you don't want your husband to to drive home drunk. Mm-hmm. However, unintentionally, that makes it a little easier to use. That allows him to to drink. So we're not saying he drive home drunk, but maybe instead it's well. Here's the number for a cab company. Mm-hmm. Here's mm-hmm. the here's the bus schedule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just walk home. Mm-hmm. And in that way, family members you know, stop making it so easy to use. And so that person gets a chance to be like, wow, when I drink this much, I have to walk home yeah, or take a cab or. Okay. So instead of moralizing, like by, of um, accusing the person, you just change your way of uh, reacting to it by not helping them. Yeah, yeah, and I really want to be, you know, careful around this because I have worked with so many people who've come in to see me and have been told that they're codependent, mm-hmm. like that they're in some way, you know, involved, responsible. Yeah, yeah. like they're like they're like 
in cahoots with the, with the person, <laughs> like helping them use. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, because we love, you know, our, our family members, we don't want to see them suffer. And sometimes the things we do, though, make it just a little bit easier for them to use. And so we have to learn kind of ways to love them differently. Like it can be also very loving to have that person walk home. Yeah, from the bar. We we had uh, Paul Gilbert on our program just a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about tough compassion. That that, that it, to, to be compassionate towards someone could be actually doing something like that. That would be a way of showing love. Yeah, I love that idea. Tough compassion is such a great. <laughs> I love that term. I'm, I'm, I totally want to use it now um, because I do think it's very similar to that. That to to love someone doesn't mean you know, kind of helping them do things that might make it easier for them to use. It doesn't mean calling their boss in the morning because they're too hungover to go into work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It might mean you tell the person, I'm not going to call your boss. Mm -hmm. You can call them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that could also be some of that tough compassion. Yeah, I, I I appreciate that you take up this about codependency because that's quite a popular word that's used, and I'm, I'm glad that um, you make it simple to see that it just notice if what you're doing is helping them to use or not helping them to use, rather than make it a sort of a diagnosis to be codependent. Yeah, I have never. Found, I mean, I'm sure that for some folks, I think they probably find that to be useful to them. And for many of the folks that I've worked with in terms of my own practice, it, it really has been something that people have struggled with and like, oh, I'm just codependent or, you know, now you're going to talk to me about how, you know, I'm, you know, you know, helping them use and I'm just mm-hmm. this like codependent person. And, and that just really it kind of it can get in the way and instead we just talk about um because another term that's often used is enabling that's mm-hmm. tossed around a lot um so you're like allowing your loved one to use and i like to kind of flip it on its head and, and talk about well how can we enable sobriety mm-hmm. like, that's, mm-hmm. like if you're gonna like if we're going to use that term enabler which i really don't like because i do think it's pretty stigmatizing mm-hmm. um but you know, let's let's flip it on its head. Let's mm-hmm. enable sobriety. Mm-hmm. That's what we're to do. Mm-hmm. So, so Christine, are you saying that the that the main point of craft is that you uh, the loved one would focus on uh, the resources of in the sobriety and resources and the things that they that are working rather than the addiction. Yeah, we want to really take back your life from their addiction. And so we want to really focus in on and give opportunities for the person with the addiction to be sober. Mm -hmm. And so we focus on what works and then we stop doing what's not working. And Mm -hmm. another big part of this is really helping family members reconnect with their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, people, understandably so, become really 
um, kind of their whole world almost gets taken over by their loved one's addiction. So they're calling bosses to, to, you know, to call in sick for their loved ones. They're the ones taking care of the kids. They're the ones taking care of the house. Like they're the ones who, you know, are kind of doing all of these things because their loved one is experiencing an addiction and this kind of stepped out of those Mm-hmm. those things. And so we work really hard on having family members re-engage in their lives. Like mm-hmm. what do they want to do? Like what like people give up hobbies, they give up relationships, like mm-hmm. people just start to isolate because they feel ashamed that their loved one is using. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to folks like they don't they don't necessarily want to isolate like that's not the life they had planned for themselves and mm-hmm. so we really work on how can you do more of the things you want to do in your life like what's important to you so more self-care and getting back into um, meaningful activities so you're they're taking care of themselves definitely and this is something that um, you know put Particularly with parents, I found this. This is really like they are caretakers. Like they, they love it. They're parents. That's, mm-hmm. what they, that's what they do. And it is so hard for them to shift that to themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about like you have those great self-care skills for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great because you have those skills already. Now here's the challenge. Let's apply them to you. Like, <laughs> yes. Have you start doing those things that you want to do? That's exactly what uh, Paul Gilbert was talking about in the program. But this is probably the most difficult thing we could possibly do is to turn that around on ourselves, to be compassionate towards ourselves, especially when we're not feeling, when we're not proud of ourselves, when we're feeling, you know, for example, if I felt like I was not being a good caretaker, um, to turn those skills on yourself is probably the, one of the most difficult things a person could do. I think I think so. I think it is. It's a really difficult thing to to do, and then particularly when you have a loved one with an addiction, and there tends to be a lot of self blame. Mm. Like, if I was only a better spouse or partner or mom or dad, and they get kind of caught up in that, and so then it's almost like I can't take care of myself because I am like a bad mom because my son uses. Mm, yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> Christine, um, how does, how does acting relate to act craft and act approach this whole problem? Yeah. I, as you said in the beginning, they are sister therapies and, and, you know, both are, um, really powerful, um, treatments for various kind of life problems including addiction and um, you know craft has a lot of really strong research support behind it to show that it really works to get people into treatment uh, the latest study said seven out of ten people who do craft will get their loved ones into treatment mm-hmm. and then we know that act is really great for things like depression and anxiety and general well-being, which definitely lots of folks I work with come in and, like I said earlier, just really feeling depressed or anxious, not taking care of themselves. And craft, so in addition to being like both just really great 
therapies in terms of the research support behind them, they also are really skills-focused. And by that, I mean that in both therapies, we really work with like folks together, like we're a team, and together we're going to work on how can we develop skills that will help you lead the life you want to lead. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, for that might mean like, well, I really want to get re-engaged in my social, my social life, and I don't want to spend all this time, you know, helping my, you know, loved one who is, who's really struggling. Like, I don't want to kind of have my life be all about that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so craft and act can work together to teach people skills on, okay, well, let's make that happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so craft has one set of skills that you can, can learn about that are really focused on kind of changing, um, kind of changing how things are going in the relationship mm-hmm. to support sobriety. Mm-hmm. And ACT, I feel, really comes in with all of the stuff that, all the emotional stuff that, that shows up, like the guilt and the anger and the frustration mm-hmm. that shows up. And ACT can teach you skills for how can you be with all of those difficult feelings and kind of move towards the things you want in your life and use these craft skills. Yeah. So, Christine, that sounds great. Do you have any examples of how what, what that might look like? Sure. Yeah. I, so let me, I'm trying to think of an example here, mm-hmm. which I have many going through my head, so I need to pick one. I would say that um, when I work, when I work with parents, you know, one, and they have adult children who, live in their home who have struggled with addiction and, and particularly I tend to see a lot of uh, parents who have adult children with opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so addiction to like Oxycontin. What, what is uh, that? It's a, it's an opiate medication that's used to treat pain, but is pretty popular uh, recreationally. It's, um, it's in the same class as heroin. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of has this depressant kind of effect and, you know, people don't really feel as much pain anymore um, and it's highly addictive mm-hmm. and it's become more popular in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with families that have their adult children at home, you know, one of the things that I see is that the parents kind of really take resume the, that parent role where they're kind of taking care of everything for this kid dinner, I mean, meals, mm. rent, you know, the car, they could just use the car to go to all these places. And mm. so in, in craft, what we might do is we might, we would examine like, are there ways that you're kind of unintentionally making it a little bit easier for, for them to keep using mm-hmm. Oxycontin? Mm. Um, and what are some of the things that we could do that would compete with using Oxycontin that would be really rewarding and support sobriety, mm-hmm. you know. And then the act part comes in because typically what shows up whenever you start to kind of discuss, like, how can we change things mm-hmm. is fear. It's, mm-hmm. oh, my God, like, if I change that, they're going to they're gonna totally start using more or they're going to run away or they're going to leave the house or all these terrible things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're going to hate and, me. 
they're going to hate me. Yeah. And usually by the time they've come in, their relationships with their, with their children are, are already pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're kind of afraid to make it get even worse. And that, and that's the fear that shows up. And so with act, we would learn skills like, okay, like you're afraid. And how can you do these things that we're talking about? How can you change you know, kind of how, how can you help support sobriety even with this fear that shows up? Mm-hmm. 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 Boy, that sounds important. It sounds like an, an uh, incredibly important job to do. Is I haven't thought so much about parents to adult children who are, are using. That must be really, really tough. It is. I think, you know, I think it's, it, it's definitely... It's hard to have a child who you have like all these hopes and, and dreams for and then to see them doing things that may be destroying their lives and may result in their death mm-hmm. and their parents want to keep their children alive at all costs mm-hmm. and sometimes that the hardest thing they can do is to step into that fear mm-hmm. and to change things, how kind of the kind of what's been going on, how to help them try to help their loved one get sober. It's a it's a risk. Mm-hmm. It's scary to do. It must be difficult um, to not as a parent not to get into a controlling. And um, I, I know that Bill Miller uh, often talked about from who you mentioned that people you have to trust that people will make the right choice for themselves. Um, yeah. And that's hard to do whenever, whenever you are watching someone who you think are making all the wrong choices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it it is. There is a certain amount of of letting go, or you know, what we kind of talk about and act as as acceptance of kind of being with what is, and kind of letting go of control. And that is really hard. And it and it's about kind of putting control where you can have control mm-hmm. like in what you do and what you say you can't control like the fear and you can't control your loved one's choices and that is really hard mm-hmm. because we really want to choose for them yeah Christine we are getting towards the end of the program already <laughs> oh my goodness it's gone by so quickly <laughs> it has <laughs> um do you have some advice that you could give our listeners who are I'm probably the many many are are suffering from this problem of of loved ones or friends who are addicted in some way what advice could you give us huh. so I think the first thing that I would want people to know is that you're not alone and that it is not your fault that your loved one uses and sure, you might have said some things or you might have done some things that you wish that you hadn't, but you don't physically make someone drink or shoot up or swallow pills. And their actions to do this are not a statement about your worth and they're not an indictment of your skills as a family member. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just really important because once... You can kind of see that, okay, I'm not alone, and this isn't 
my fault, you can then reach out for sec- for social support because social support is so important at this time and so many people isolate and feel afraid to reach out to people and yet this will probably be one of the hardest things you ever do is to help your loved one try to get sober or to be with someone who is using and so as difficult as it is being able to reach out to others in whatever way is helpful to you, whether that's smart recovery or that is Al-Anon or a 12-step organization or it's your spiritual community, whichever way it is, definitely reach out to, to other people. And then I would say that if folks are particularly interested in craft, then I would really encourage them to go to the Sober Families website where there's a lot of resources there um, that you can find out much more about about craft, including, you know, um, links to, to, you know, to other resources, including a self-help book. And that self-help book is wonderful, and I read it a lot, and I use it all the time, and many of my folks I work with use it all the time, and so, and it's a, it's a great resource. And then you know, if you think like, hey, I need more support than what I have, like self-help book, that's great, but it's not working for me or, you know, got some good social support, but I really, really need help practicing these craft skills, then I just really encourage people to go to Psychology Today or the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science to look up providers in their area because they don't need to do this on their own. Like it's okay to reach out and to get help and to have someone work with you on this. That sounds great. Because I just was curious, what about children to alcoholics? What if, if we've been talking a lot about adults here? But what, how would you advise if there are um, teenagers or young people listening right now who have parents uh, who are um, uh, using alcohol or drugs? What advice would you give children? I would, I would probably give them very similar advice. Actually, I, there are organizations. Um, there's like Alateen. I believe, um, which are directly for children or teenagers Mm -hmm. who have loved ones with addictions. Um, But I still think that they could use the same same resources. And again, to to reach out, to Mm -hmm. reach out to trusted others, to, to get into a support group, to take a, you know, to take a look at what resources are out there. And if they want to be able to join a group or some one-on-one kind of counseling to really help them get through this. It's often very difficult, especially for children, because they're dependent on these adults. And um, so they there's a lot more fear of actually, you know, who, where would I live and what would happen to my family because they actually are dependents. It is. It is definitely a difficult situation that they're in. And, you know, it kind of for me, really highlights the importance of reaching out to other people, to trusted others. So people like maybe in schools or in their churches or... Yeah, if they feel that that those people can be supportive of them and and not judgmental because, you know, we... There's so many different people we have in our lives and some people are really good at certain parts of of social support Mm. and some are really bad. (laughs) So... (laughs) I mean, you know, I probably wouldn't recommend then going to somebody who's going to be like, you know, it's your fault or, you know, your family just needs to do this or that or, you know, it's because, you know, 
they're this way or that way. But I think that if they feel like there is someone at school or there is someone at their their spiritual organization um, or if it's like Alateen or Smart Recovery, if there's somebody there that they could reach out to mm-hmm. who might be able to give them a, that additional support and to direct them to, to, to other resources to really to really help them get through this really difficult situation. Thank you so much, Christine, for being on our program today. Oh, thank you so much, Joanne. It's been my pleasure. Today you've been listening to Dr. Christine Terry. Christine is a clinical psychologist who has experience in training in ACT and CRAFT, which is an evidence-based therapy for addiction and other disorders. Christine has also been interested in stigma related to substance abuse. Um, she, You can read more about Christine and Kraft on the Sober Families website. And you can get to that by clicking on Christine's name on this week's episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.